Welcome to High Energy Health, where together we explore the leading edge of wellness and happiness. I'm your host, Dawson Church. By choosing this time together, you're declaring your commitment to a positive mindset, elevated emotions, and a great life. Thanks for joining me for today's episode. Hello and welcome to High Energy Health. Each week on the show, I just love bringing you the latest in health and well-being. And there is so much right now to get excited about. So I find myself wildly excited every week as I share these breakthrough discoveries with you. I know that recently I had Stephen Cutler on the show. Stephen is the author of 13 books, 10 of which have been bestsellers. And we talked about flow, high performance, the neurochemicals in your brain, and how these elevated states are accessible now to anyone. But one of the, the pieces of, of information I shared with Stephen on the show was that there was a study done showing that the neurotransmitter dopamine in our brain goes up by 65% when we do certain kinds of meditation. Imagine that you meditate and then this, I call it the motivational molecule in your brain goes up 65%. What that also does is that triggers the production of various downstream genes and neurotransmitters, all kinds of good things happen when dopamine rises like that. And after a while, you start to get more serotonin in your brain, more oxytocin, more beta endorphins, all these wonderful feel-good neurochemicals all in your brain at the same time. I describe all of those in my book, Bliss Brain, and you can get the book for free at blissbrain.com. We're also doing research now on people using those free meditations, which are available with the book at blissbrain.com, and the research using MRIs, using EEGs, using various kinds of psychological tests by showing us that people get much happier when they do this. One of the people I've been interviewing, a number of people trying these meditations, and one was saying, I'm getting happier that I even knew was possible. I thought I was a happy person before I began. I'm now going to Bliss Brain on a daily basis. So I want that for you. And you can get both the book and meditations free at blissbrain.com. My guest today is Dr. Jeffrey Martin. Jeffrey has been studying consciousness for many, many years. He came out of a career in, in communications and media, and he just did all kinds of amazing things in his early career in his 20s, and then found himself in, in a position in his 30s to study and do whatever he wanted to do. And he picked consciousness because he wasn't all that happy himself, and he knew there were people who were hitting these extreme states of well-being. So he began to study those people, and he wrote a book called The Finders. The Finders are people who've gone from being seekers of well-being, seekers of enlightenment, seekers of these extraordinary mental and emotional states to finders of them. So Jeffrey has now studied literally thousands and thousands of people who moved from being seekers, finders, and began to plot exactly how you do this, what methods move the needle the fastest. So you're going to love connecting with my guest today, Dr. Jeffrey Martin, and you will find that it's not only interesting and powerful information, it's also really useful. This is also part two of a two-part series. So if you didn't listen to part one, 
go and listen to part one, where Jeffrey talks about what he calls the locations in consciousness that finders get to. They aren't all in the same place. It's not like you're a finder and you're in the same place as the other finders. There are different locations within these these state, and they have different kinds of experiences in those different locations. You want to go and listen to that first interview and get familiar with the locations Jeffrey is talking about, how he measures them, what each one is like. So I'm so pleased today to welcome Dr. Jeffrey Martin as a repeat guest as we look into the science of consciousness. So many people I know have the same story, right? And yet, and so I just, you know, I'd done everything. I'd like gone, I'd spent money and, you know, no money and done everything I could to try to change that in me. And it just didn't work. And so finally, I went off on my own quest to see if I could really solve it. And I left all of that behind and I went back to school and picked up cognitive psychology and, you know, neuroscience and skills like that and how to do scholarly research instead of business or technology or whatever research. And, you know, here we are 15 years later at the end of a project that I, you know, really went all around the world looking for who are the happiest people. And it wound up being these people who are experiencing, it was often thought of as sort of a persistent transcendence, something that's often lumped in with religion, you know, with Buddhists, enlightenment, and, you know, mystics and Christianity and Islam, and all the way down, certainly to, you know, the most, the earliest forms of human religion. You know, you find it in the first writings of mythology and human religion and all of that, right? But we found that it's really brain-based, you know, it's, it's brain and body-based. You can see the signatures of it. You can produce the signatures of it with direct brain stimulation. You know, these days we've been messing around with things like transcranial ultrasound, which is just like a speaker you stick on the outside of your head. That's kind of fancy with some advanced mathematics. And it can very precisely stimulate parts of the brain. When you stimulate the parts of the brain that showed up in the neuroscience work around this, you get similar effects, you know, unsurprising effects, the effects you'd expect you would probably get. You know, um, and so it's really been a fascinating journey into what is extraordinary happiness. It's exactly what Judith, who I love, Judith is amazing and her work is incredible. Everybody you mentioned, I love, you know, there were Stephen and I, all friends of mine, I love them all. You know, it's exactly what Judith says, right? Which is like, I, we get this all the time. You know, there's like, I was, I thought I was like peaked out in happiness. And then it turns out there's like this whole other form or this whole other level of well being that's possible that I never even suspected before. And so that's really the territory we've been mapping. And of course, mapping it now with tools, even mapping people's experiences. And then you've also been assessing them before and after. And so you now can actually quantify this and you're starting to actually publish those results. What are those initial analyses showing? So the analysis is really incredibly rich because we believe in just collecting extraordinary amounts of data, more data than any research subject ever wants to sit through. <laughs> <laughs> I can testify as having been one of your subjects. So on the one hand, you get extraordinary well-being. On the other hand, you get to get over your trauma involving all of the research and the extraordinary well-being. It's a bit of a catch-22 with us, kind of, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so we have all of this psychology uh, data, we have tons of neuroscience data. And the fascinating thing about it all is it's very consistent. You know, when you when you take our psychology data and you show it to people who really understand that data, who've been reading articles about that type of data and whatnot forever, you know, what you get is disbelief, frankly, that you can have these levels of movement, right? Just exactly like you were talking about with Steven. You know, I mean, you talk uh, you talk about these massive changes in neurotransmitters and in and just, you know, sort of shifts in baseline stuff in your brain. It's not just 
the neurochemicals, it's the brain waves, it's the connectivity, and it's both functional and, you know, non-functional, sort of virtual, if people want to think of it that way. And it was not directly wired together, connectivity, and just all sorts of stuff. These things all matter. I mean, brain pieces getting thicker and thinner, right? Based on where you would want them to get thicker and thinner, right? So like not the fear center, not getting more, right? But shrinking and other stuff getting, you know, more. It's incredible the, the consistency of the data across it all, right? So whether you're talking about the psychological data or the cognitive science data or the neuroscience data or the physiological data, I think you'll agree because you're familiar with the literature as well. You know, it's a, it's a remarkably consistent picture across the whole thing. And we've seen the same thing in these extreme sort of, you know, extremely high-end forms of well-being, if you were, sort of this next generation, if you will, sort of forms of well-being. The picture is incredibly consistent. Now, you have this point that you describe of entering persistent well-being. In the finders, you talk about that as kind of the threshold. And what I was wondering is how you measure that. How do you measure when someone's in persistent well-being? What is the, the threshold for well-being? And then what is the test for persistent well-being? I think that's a great question. And there's a lot of different ways that we can do it, but we need a practical way for people to do it for themselves listening to this podcast, right? And so what we do from a practical standpoint, not from like a physiological standpoint or something like that, but from a practical standpoint, is we just basically give people choice A and choice B, if you will. And choice A is essentially default, the default human condition, which is an animal-based condition, right? It's a condition that basically says something's wrong in this moment. Your system should be on guard, right? Maybe the ceiling's going to fall in, right? Or maybe somebody's going to burst into the room, or maybe the internet connection is going to go down and that's going to be a disaster or whatever else, right? But the system is kind of always on edge. And with traditional things like positive psychology sort of what have been considered traditionally sort of the best tools within science to really help people get happier. It can dull that edge. It can kind of push it a little bit more into the background. You know, some people's genetics will, will keep it a little bit more into the background, but you've got it, right? If you look for it and you look down deep and you ask, what's the base of my sort of psychological functioning in the world, you basically get down to a moment to moment discontentment of some kind, a sense that something might not be right. And you've got to kind of be on guard. It's in every animal, look at any animal in the animal kingdom, you know, watch them take a minute to eat. And what do they do when they're not taking that bite? They're looking around for what might be about to kill them, right? And so it's that type of thing. The thing that changes with this is that that just plain goes away. And it runs across every variant and every variation of this. And what it's replaced with is the exact opposite, which is a sense that somehow, even if it's very paradoxically, you might be in a dangerous situation, but still deep down, it feels like somehow things are still fundamentally okay. There's this fundamental contentment as uh, one of my friends from Yale, for instance, calls it, or these, these different words that people have tried to sort of get at this with, because it's such a surprising and different way of experiencing the world as a human. And so what we tell people is even in the worst time, you know, your spouse comes home and says, I'm leaving you and taking the kids and I've already emptied the bank accounts and, you know, whatever else, right? And it seems like it's the end of the world, right? But you, if you can just pause, look down deep in that moment and see what is at the deepest level of your core sort of psychology or subjective experience. For, you know, people that are finders, it's basically somehow paradoxically, things still seem okay. It doesn't make you non-functional. Doesn't mean you're not going to try to figure out how to transfer that money back to your account or 
whatever it is, right? But but it's that's the that's the big change. It's almost like an evolutionary leap in the human nervous system that is probably not appropriate if you're still living in the rainforest or something, right? But for us living relatively safe, modern lives, you know, realistically, why should my system be expending the energy in every moment to stay on edge because something might like no very rarely does anything ever happen. Society yeah. is conspiring to give me food that isn't poisoned, to fatten me up instead of letting me lose weight to all of these things, right? I mean, it's not like we're starving and we're in danger and we're, you know, so that's the big change. So shifting our, our biology and our neurology to reflect the reality of the society we live in right now. And then on those assessments, you're having people fill out. And I did very dutifully when I was taking your course, I did go out and I fill out all, all the assessments. I actually really enjoyed doing it. But I'm a researcher again. It was a pleasure. But like, what? how does that show up on which assessment that they people have hit that level of fundamental well-being and then that they're in it persistently? Yeah, that's a great question. What we find is that the surprising thing about this is that it's variable. So you can see it in the neuroscience, but you can't see it as cleanly in the psychological measures, right? And so if I were to just look at, say, the authentic happiness inventory, which is one of the happiness measures that we use, there isn't a cut score, right? It's not like above whatever, above 4.83, you're in persistent fundamental well-being, and below that, you're not. And one of the reasons for that is actually kind of a problematical thing with these types of measures, right? And so what often often happens, for instance, is people will go through the baseline of the measures and, you know, they might think they're very happy or whatever else. Right. Uh, and so, you know, they'll be like, oh, I'm a 4.8 out of five or whatever. Right. And then they get through and they realize there's this whole other level of well-being that they never imagined existed before. And then they're like, well, crap, like I can't really answer that I'm any happier than I did before. So then they're like, what do I do about this? You know, how do I fill out these measures? Uh, because I, like I now I realize if I could go back, I should adjust those down as the baseline, right? And so there's these interesting problems actually that come up like this. There's also problems with using psychological measures that are designed for a different, an entirely different form of well-being, really. We have to use them because we have to use the generally accepted measures in the academy, as you know, in order for research to be considered valid, right? But you know, I know which questions we should just be cutting out of there because they're just not relevant, right? So the, for instance, there's a depression measure, a very popular one from the, it's basically called the SESD, right? Or the Center for mm -hmm. Epidemiological Studies, right? Depression scale. And so that one, like a PNSE person is never really going to hit zero. They can come really close, but there are some questions in there that you're just going to answer in the affirmative to, right? And they're positive in terms of how a fundamental well-being person means that right? It's like, that, that's not a negative answer on that question. That's like a very positive answer on that question. But from a traditional psychological standpoint, if you're not in that state of consciousness. And so there's, there's complications around the measures like that. If you want yeah, to- Yeah, I know. In fact, you helped me understand that in a previous conversation, because I had done one MRI study and people scored higher on the happiness scale and on the depression scale. We're trying to explain to the peer reviewers how to do this. I forget how we did it, but we put in some kind of implausible explanation. But it was, you know, you're, you're right. We, we don't yet have the instruments to capture these states. Jeff, we're going to go to a break in a moment over here. And again, for those of you who are listening or watching, the book is called The Finders. My guest is Dr. Jeffrey Martin. Go ahead and check out his work. Jeffrey, at the end, will describe your courses, your current courses as well, and how you can actually be part of this work and experience these states yourself in a really short way under Jeffrey's guidance. So we're going to a break right now. After that, we'll be back. So stick around. There's a lot more fabulous stuff to come.
my name is Dawson Church. You're back listening to High Energy Health. Welcome back. And each week on the show, we just overflow with enthusiasm for all these amazing new breakthroughs in health, well-being, and happiness, and how you can apply them to your life. It's unbelievably powerful. It's unbelievably useful in shifting your reality field and the reality of everything around you. So please do apply these techniques. They can make a huge difference in your life. Jeffrey, Earlier, you used the term PNSE. Go ahead and define that and also give us a quick Cook's tour of the locations, at least the first four locations. Absolutely. Yeah, sorry about that. I just threw that in. I've been doing a lot of research talk today, so I've got a problem. It's our science word instead of our public word. So that stands for persistent non-symbolic experience, which is basically our academic term, our catch-all academic term for this type of stuff. It means the exact same thing as fundamental well-being. So when people hear fundamental well-being or PNSE or persistent non-symbolic experience, they can just think of it as all the same thing. And what our previous work has shown and what was in the last interview with you, and people can go back and review, is that there are different types of this. And so uh, there are many different types of it. There are four primary kinds that people land in. We call those locations. We say they fall along sort of a continuum of related experiences. And so you're sort of located somewhere on this continuum of experiences. And location one is actually a very simple thing. It's just a transition from that sense of self that had the fear and worry and whatnot as its foundation to the one that has its sort of, you know, peace, everything sort of okay deep down as its primary change. Uh, you know, negative thoughts fall off faster. Negative emotions fall off faster. There's a quieter mind in some cases with people. There's all kinds of other traits that people can see in that earlier interview. The second location is really sort of a deepening of that, but there's also a perceptual shift. And so the mind, get, you know, the negative self-talk and all of that gets quieter. The, the emotion gets more positive. But there's also, if people have heard the term non-duality, which is just a perceptual shift where it sort of feels like there's a oneness, uh, that can start to come in in various forms. And that second and type, that location two type. And location three, it's sort of the classic end of the Christian mystical path or the Sufi path or whatever else, some of the Buddhist paths as well, some of the Hindu paths where it's like one dominant emotion of love and joy and compassion with one of those facets sort of more dominant anytime. Some people feel that a divine and a merger and a union with the divine. Other people feel like a overall consciousness or like a big consciousness sort of that they're, that everything is conscious and they're sort of merging with that, if you will. Then location four is a real oddball compared to the ones that come before it because all the final bit of emotion drops away. It's no emotion Emotion, no sense of agency, no sense that you can do anything or take any action. The world just seems synchronistic, like it's just unfolding magically, sort of in some sense, which really it should seem like that to us all the time anyway, right? Because it kind of is. Uh, we have no idea why anything exists, of course, right? It's just all here and happening. But you really, that comes front and center, you know, in the experience as part of that. There's no sense of the divine. The divine goes away. That panpsychic sense, if you had that, goes away. So there's just these very big differences between types. And people can get into that in, other, in the last interview, if they want to sort of watch that and get a little bit more detail. Those listening, that Jeffrey is really the first person to map what we call these locations. There are others beyond four, but just one through four are the first to be aware of. And then you'll be, I'm sure you're mentally self-assessing yourself as you're listening to Jeffrey. So you're getting some sense right now, just by that really clear description of where you are. So that's, that's kind of the starting point over here. And then we're going to move, we're now going to talk about how you can shift between them, shift between the different locations. Yeah, it's fascinating. And one of the things that I thought would be fun to talk about today, because we haven't really been talking about it up to this point. And so I think you're probably the first show I've ever really talked about it on. And that's a pretty neat thing. You're the ideal person, you know, to talk about this with because you're so awesome. Uh, you're so you have such breadth across all of this. I mean, you, you know, you're just amazing. You can't you couldn't have this kind of conversation with many people, right? Have it be rich and deep and, you know, have, know that the host is really going to pull out the understanding for the audience and all of that, right? And so one of the things that we've noticed over years is that 
that you have this situation where fundamental well-being in these religious and spiritual traditions that have been incredible developers of this and carriers of it over time, and even philosophical traditions uh, have done it, you know, it's almost always viewed in a univariate kind of construct. And what I mean by that is it's like you're trying to get to X place, right? And so like if you're in the Christian tradition or the Islamic tradition or something like that, right? You're trying to get to location three. You're trying to get to this place that has a very clear phenomenological description like the one that I just gave for it. And if you're, you're either in it or you're not, right? And then when you're in it, sort of the name of the game is to get like as much of you crammed into it as you possibly can right? And so what's fascinating about this from our perspective is that first, that's what it kind of feels like you should be doing, right? And so if you just kind of naturally stumble into this stuff, that's just sort of what it feels like the natural unfolding process should be. But of course, we know from every other form of human psychology that lots of times our natural intuitions are not our best or our strongest ones, right? I mean, they don't necessarily lead to like a superior, peaceful human race and, you know, <laughs> lots of, lots of, you know, compassion and, and sort of whatever else, right? Our tendencies tend to be towards, I'm going to accumulate as much as I possibly can, you know, the heck with you. And, you know, my tribe is going to win out over your tribe. And, you know, I'm going to switch tribes if my tribe's losing and, you know, whatever else, right? So it's, it's the same, it turns out, with fundamental well-being, we think. And so we think that one of the things that happens, we've, you know, we've had thousands of people transition in our experiments at this point. And one of the fascinating things that we see when people are in the early part of the transition process is that it, the system generally does not lock in a specific type of fundamental well-being for them. And so what people commonly do is they will write into support, write into our experimental support, you know, which is usually staffed by like grad students and, you know, our scientists and stuff like that. And they'll say, so I've had what seems to be a transition, but my system seems to be all over the place, right? Like I can't tell if I'm in location one or three or four or two. I feel like I'm experiencing a lot of these different locations and I'm very confused by that. And over the time, what we've seen is what we think is happening is that this traditional idea of sort of shoving everything into a univariate sort of system within yourself, just trying to get everything into location two, if that's where, you know, you believe is the right version of fundamental well-being, right? Or everything into location three or whatever else. We think it's actually supposed to be a much more flexible system than that. And mm. you've got a lot of different parts of your psychology, a lot of different parts of your psyche. And that, you know, it's okay for one piece of you, for instance, maybe the intimate relationship piece with a partner, it's best to have that be in location three. It's got the love and the joy and the compassion. It's a great, I mean, it who doesn't want to be around location three people, like the best people to be around, right? Whole traditions of like stopped at location three, just because like, that's who you'd want to be in the monastery with, right? Not a bunch of location four people, maybe. And so it's like, you know, there's been all these decisions made over time around these types of things, right? Whereas for work, it might be better for me to be in location two, right? And so what often happens is people kind of struggle with this. When they learn about the different locations, they're like, wow, well, I, location three is amazing. You know, I'd really love to be in location three, but I just can't run my business from location three. You know, I just have to be in location two to run my business. You know, I've just learned this practically, right? And so what we're saying to people increasingly now is, you know, maybe don't think of this so much as a univariate system. And a univariate system approach to it, we think has actually caused a lot of problems because what you're really 
doing with all forms of human psychology is you're basically picking your band of disassociation in your subjective experience, right? I mean, the only thing, we talk a lot about ego conscious or sort of, you know, normal narrative self-consciousness, the consciousness that we're all sort of, it's built in us as we grow up, right? Our parents put it in us, our schools put it in us, our workplaces put us in it. You know, everything is designed to sort of shape our consciousness in a very, our subjective experience of the world in a very specific way, right? What's it really doing there? It's basically saying, this is the acceptable band, right? And this is what we've agreed upon from the standpoint of culture as what is acceptable. So you stand these bands, you get certain degrees of rewards. You go outside of these bands, the rewards are much less certain. Things might be more difficult. Things might be more, you know, whatever else, right? So this is the safety zone. This is where you want to, you know, this is where you want to associate everything from here on up. You want to disassociate from that. You don't want that in your reality. Everything from here on down, you want to disassociate from it. You don't want that in your reality, right? And so you're always sort of creating this band, if you will, of disassociation. And it's no different, I don't think, when people go to location three or location four or different depths in location three and location four, it's the same process. It's kind of like choosing your band, if you will, of this. And the thing is, you, if you have, if you're in location four and it's no agency, right? It's no, you know, self-referential thoughts. It's no sense of the divine or whatever, right? I mean, it's all these things, right? That that are gone, right? Well, that leaves a lot of stuff up here that is outside the zone, and a lot of things down here that is outside the zone that really help you to function, you know, in terms of just being nice to people, <laughs> time, right? you know, and whatever else, right? So you have to move into that that location three to be nice to people, to relate to people, and so on. We'll pick up with more of this after a break. You're listening to High Energy Health. My guest today is Dr. Jeffrey Martin. His book is called The Finders. Please stay tuned. We'll be right back after a break. Hello, and welcome back to High Energy Health. I'm so delighted you are here. And every week we explore the leaning edge of wellness and happiness, and especially giving you tools you can apply in your own life. This is the second half of a two-part interview with Dr. Jeffrey Martin, author of the book, The Finders. Jeffrey, also, which website should I give people, should we give people as far as the best one to get the whole collection of your work right now? That's a great question. I think probably either non-symbolic, N-O-N-S-O-M-B-O-L-I-C.org, non-symbolic.org, which is our main research center site, probably has the craziest collection of links to all kinds of different facets of this and stuff. Or my site is actually not that bad as a hub either, drjeffreymartin.com. I tend to sort of keep it well pruned down. To okay, like good, good, okay. So drjeffreymartin.com or nonsymbolic.org. So go there to get more information about Jeffrey and also about current projects he's doing and how you can join into one of these wonderful courses he's been teaching and refining for the last many years. So Jeffrey, taking this to the next level, one of the ways in which I've been, I've been wrong so many times in my scientific career, and I, <clears throat> I love being wrong. It's like when I, I have this argument about, you know, with the acupuncturists saying that you, you can tap any point, it's just the act of tapping on the skin, acupressure that's effective, the actual points don't matter. I was totally wrong because then there were studies showing that it's the, the actual points are tiny, it matters. 20 years ago, we thought that, well, there was neural plasticity in certain parts of the brain, but it was basically pretty fixed and you know, could affect some, some parts of the brain in a minor way. Now, 
the research is showing we're affecting parts of the brain in crazy, enormous ways, like the one case history in my book, This Brain, of this guy who began mindfulness, and his dentate gyrus grew by 22.8% in eight weeks. I mean, we're now realizing this crazy neuroplasticity going on in the brain. So as people are then discovering these locations, moving into successive locations, then discovering that they have the ability to move between locations as well, and again, there's a lot more where that, that idea comes from, what parts of the brain are changing? Like we know the emotion regulation network's changing pretty quickly. What are the parts of the brain do you expect are changing as people progress in their ability to move between those locations? That's uh, a great question. And, you know, it's, you really would sort of have to get into the weeds on this one a little bit. The primary changes are really around nodes that relate to, as you might expect, some key sort of effective processing type things, meaning emotional processing type things. But much more so to things that relate to net to the overall network and also the many, many sub-networks that have been discovered around the default mode. And so if you look at the default mode network and you look at its two primary hubs, you know, one basically in the front of the brain and one in the back of the brain, basically between the hemispheres and such, you see the most pronounced changes as someone really deepens into this in those types of parts and structures in the brain. And from there, it gets down to connectivity changes. And so it's not that you're like looking at substantial changes in this or that specific part of the, or activity, you know, for at some specific part of the brain. What you're really looking at is how the brain is rewiring communication between different, both sub-networks of that overall default network structure, but also from that default network to other networks that exist in the brain. You know, I think one of the great studies in this area was really done by uh, Zorn Yusipovic, uh, who you probably know. And, you know, Zorn did this great study many years ago that he talked about forever. And like, I felt like he, like every conference I went to and was speaking at that he was speaking at, which was a lot of them giving the same talk. And it was felt like it was just bouncing off of people, you know, the, the power of his of his research, right? And it basically it showed the first rewiring between these networks, which was groundbreaking work at the time, you know, because it, there, it, there was this belief, right? Where you have these two main networks, let's say the task and default network, just to use loose terms. And, you know, task is pretty self-explanatory, right? When you're doing a task, it's more active, right? And default is kind of also self-explanatory when you're just sort of sitting around lollygagging, right? The default network goes up, you're not doing a task, right? So the task one goes down. And the idea is that there's sort of, you know, one goes up when the other goes down, right? And Zorin was like, these aren't doing that as much as they should in people who are experiencing non-duality as an example. And he's like, you know, what's going on here? And it turned out to be a, a fundamental rewiring. And that is what is happening. And listen, this is the thing that is going to be groundbreaking about fundamental well-being research for the next 10 years or so. Because what I think is going to be realized, what we've realized, I know some others are getting to, is that these states, these, these traits, if you will, these, these subjective, persistent ways of experiencing the world, they are not fixed, right? Like location three is location three because a crap ton of methods over the years kind of got people to reconfigure their brain in a certain way where location three pops out of it, right? Uh, but now that you can just take a sound wave and poke part of the brain that's deep in there and you don't have to have some elaborate method for decades or whatever, like a whole different configurations of fundamental well-being are able to show up. The brain is able to learn very powerfully. You know, if you take psychedelics, it's a bit of a problem because your, you know, your neurotransmitters are just flooded 
right? And so the brain can't learn. It has difficulty getting back to those states. It's one of the things that drives the psychedelic people crazy, right? Is that they can't learn to get to non-duality very easily, it doesn't seem, from psychedelics. They're just, but if you're just poking a tiny part of the brain and the brain can see what difference that makes, it's like, oh, I'll be darned. That part does that. Well, let's see what happens when I connect it to this, right? And you can work with it more intentionally and whatever else. So one of the that's going to come out is that the finder's book is going to be obsolete probably in 10 or 20 years, right? And this notion of locations is going to be quaint. You know, it's going to be like, oh, well, that's what humanity sort of hacked its way to for a few thousand years. And now, you know, what, do you, what is it that you want to, you know, bring up? You want to bring, you want to bring self-referential thought down 20%. You want to bring, you know, bliss up 10%. You want some combination of love and compassion over here. Yeah, we'll just dial that in right and it's gonna it's there's a revolution coming in all of this that i think very few people can see right now on this fundamental well-being side of the fence in terms of it's going to be a lot more customized than people can imagine it being right now and they're thus much more able to be appropriate for maximizing individual lives and there's this amazing dance but we're going to go to a break in a moment but there's this amazing dance between phenomenology, a word we used earlier in the show, which just means your lived experience of this. I describe a, something I'm experiencing and the label we slap on it in psychology is phenomenology. That's phenomenology to you. And then there's independent observation. We measure things going on in the brain or in the body with genes, with neurotransmitters, with hormones, with enzymes. So there are these two things and they interweave. You have to understand that we hear about these states and then some bright guy called Robert Becker in 1961 hooks right. up an EG to the brain of someone in, in these states and says, wow, look at this wave. And then Max Kate in England doing the same thing. And then all these people are, are starting to do that. Then, then the same, well, there's a brainwave going on here. Then we, we feed that back to the experience. And we say, well, when you're having this experience, uh, go ahead and really intensify that for us. You see which brainwave wave gets stronger. So there's this amazing dialogue that happens now. And what Jeffrey's explaining to us now, this is a really important thing is Jeffrey is mapping the phenomenology of these locations in a way that's never been done before. We've never had this level of detail. I know because I've studied them. I've looked at all the mystical traditions and how they intersect. And the degree of sophistication that this model has is unlike anything we have, have as yet. And still, it's mostly phenomenological. It's mostly people's experience. But what Jeffrey's saying is that we're now starting to be able to map the neurology of that, which part of the brain is, is active. And our MRIs are now so sensitive, their resolution is much higher, they can pick up tiny parts of the brain. So we're now mapping what's going on in the brain, that'll again, feed into experience, lots of people experience things, and the, the dialogue will continue. So this is an incredibly, incredibly exciting time in science and in spirituality as these two threads come together. And what Jeffrey's saying is that in the next 10 years, that this is going to cause a revolution in our understanding of humankind and human potential. So please stay tuned. We'll pick up more on these points after a break. My name is Dawson Church. You're listening to High Energy Health. Go ahead and grab a copy of Jeffrey's book, The Finders, and stay tuned for more. Hello and welcome back. You're listening to High Energy Health. I'm your host, Dawson Church. Each week on the show, we're exploring the leading edge of health 
well-being and happiness and tools you can use. I would encourage you too to pick up a copy of my new book, Bliss Brain at blissbrain.com. You'll also get eight meditations there, eight free meditations as well as a free copy of the book. And those meditations are really powerful. We're now getting reports back from people using them and they're having all kinds of transcendent experiences from the very, very first one. So well worth going to blissbrain.com, grabbing those free meditations as well as your copy of the book. A lot of this will make more sense to you as well because you'll see what all these brain regions are and what they do. And for more on Jeffrey's work, go to his website, nonsymbolic.org, nonsymbolic.org. I encourage you to get involved in his community. The book, his book, The Finders, is all about the, the, the common characteristics of people who move from being seekers to finders. But what you'll get when you're a member of Jeffrey's community is you'll get a sense of the people there and the profound shifts that his work is making in their lives. So you'll find all of that and more at nonsymbolic.org. Jeffrey, in our last segment here, I'd love to explore where all of this is going next. What is the next phase of our research, our experience, and where is this taking us in the next while? Absolutely. That's a, that's a great question. In my case, it took me out of the studio. When we first booked this, I was expecting to be in one of my studio locations. And here I'm in a cloud forest of, of uh, Costa Rica right now. I don't know if you can see that out the window. If you're wondering what that is back there. I keep getting darker. Sorry about that. As, as the show goes on here. And part of it is an initiative where what we see coming really is the science has reached a tipping point. And it's sufficiently documented and it's sufficiently at scale and it's sufficiently flushed out that where we think things are headed in the next period of years is primarily in a public perception or a public market shift, if you will. I mean, you know, you and, uh, you know, and others have played instrumental roles in really laying the foundation for that, of course, for many, many years now, right? But it's just, it's like, it's, it's ripe. It's really ripe. Like, I can't imagine what more research we could possibly do or put out there or whatever else that would like lend some extra one one millionth of a percentile thing on some statistical <laughs> thing that I mean, you know, it's just right. like, it's so obvious that it just is what it is at this point. And so now it's going to be down to folks like us really increasingly communicating, you know, more broadly from a public community standpoint, I think, and making people more available like you do with your work and your books and all of that and your research. It's the same exact thing, right? I mean, you know, if you can blow someone like Stephen Kotler's mind off of, you know, I mean, that's a guy who's like knee deep in all this stuff too, right? I mean, all tons of New York Times bestsellers around lots of you know performance stuff and the flow stuff and all that. So where I think this is really heading is almost towards a cleaning up, if you will, in a modern context, the same way medicine did, right? And so like, if I have a fever today, I'm not likely to find a 12th century doctor that will bleed me <laughs> and get rid of my fever, right? And so, but that's kind of where we're at with the whole fundamental well-being thing. You know, there's a lot of people insisting, no, 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 you just need a good bleeding or let me get this leech in just the right spot, you know? <laughs> that'll push you over or whatever else. And we just know that that's not true anymore. And so I think there's an impetus on us in the coming moments here societally to really, really have the outreach and to really start to make people more aware of the, first of all, the science, but second of all, what the science brings you, which is a much deeper understanding of what's actually going on and a much greater reliability in actually getting there and making use of 
it in a modern context, right? I mean, we've long ago, as you said in the early part of your show, in the intro to this show, like, you know, you don't need to give up sex. You don't need to give up meat. You don't need to give up all of these different things, the pleasure of other forms or money. You don't have to be broke. In fact, it's a lot easier to be in fundamental well-being if you're not broke, right? Because you have a lot more time to meditate if you're not broke or to do the practices or whatever. If you're not in survival consciousness trying to figure out how you're going to feed yourself, you know, this afternoon. And so there's a lot of these things that have been, that are sort of cultural baggage that I think will be turned around in the coming period. I think, so you're going to have that on one front and we're working very hard on that as are you and many others, of course, that we're all sort of friends with trying to sort of help this whole thing along with. And then the other side is really the advancements that are going to be made in technology. You know, if you think about some of the things like Elon Musk's um, Neuralink uh, or, you know, there's so many technologies like that, that I could mention, you know, that's a, just to pick a famous one that people may have at least heard about at some point in the news, right? Or Mary Lou Jepsen has an incredible sort of on the cheap fMRI thing with like infrared stuff or whatever. These technologies are going to be you know, normal 10 years from now, probably. And the capabilities that they are going to bring with them in terms of us optimizing, you know, modifying and optimizing our subjective experience of the world is as unimaginable to us today as, you know, the internet would have been to you or I back when the sum total of information that was available to us was our local library, right? I mean, it's it's going to be on that kind of a scale of revolution. I think if you bring these two things together, the technology will reinforce what the scientific understanding and whatnot is, right? And make it much more accessible. I think you'll see this becoming a viable additional option in people's lives. Right now, people basically, you know, they have a few different, well, I can focus on career, or I can focus on family, or I can focus on this, or I can focus on that as they're designing their lives, but they don't know about this really. And that, and even if they do, they think there's like three people in the world that probably experience it or something <laughs> like that, right? And I think what we're going to see is in you know 10 years from now or so, and which means it's going to be phasing in quick over the period of time from now to then, it's going to be a lot more orthodox and it's going to be just a normal thing that and you making consider. making a change as, in society too, because that, that yeah, curve of people using totally. these, these techniques is going way up. If millions of people are remodeling their brains from that survival brain to totally. this new perspective and there are in those locations and the curve of people going up doing that and suddenly we have millions of people in that in those locations then society will change profoundly profoundly and it's all going to change at a time when ai and robotics are coming online in different ways and you have people's identities being you know falling through the floor anyway and people struggling covid i think was a great test of that you know what happens when you send the world home to do nothing right people get depressed they get suicidal like our the way our consciousness is programmed for our modern society is not really able to handle the AI robotics economy that's coming over the next 50 years, right? And so these changes need to be, it's, to me, it's just nature. Like I'm, I feel like I'm a cog in the wheel for nature. You probably feel like the same thing. Like nature just, it knows what's coming. It knows where humanity has to get to. It's experimenting with different options to see which one might work out for that. But it's not going to send us home long-term to get depressed and suicidal. It's going to send us home to be awesome, right? Because and the, that's how we're evolving. history is an arc of awesomeness, yeah. you know? Yeah. And the future will be nothing like the past or how we imagined it will be projected out on a, on a spectrum. Jeffrey, thank you so much again for sharing these amazing insights and this remarkable perspective on, on human potential that really is unlike anything that's come before. And I just, I'm so thrilled you're doing your work. I love supporting it. And I know there's more to come. So thank you so much. And I can't wait to see where you take us next. 
Thank you so much. You know, I feel the same about you. I'm a huge fan of your work. We'll be doing things together. You've been listening to High Energy Health. My name is Dawson Church. I've really appreciated you taking the time to do this and honoring yourself, loving yourself enough to show up and be here. Thank you so much. We'll be back next week with more in this amazing series on science, the brain, and well-being. Till then, stay healthy, stay happy.